Today on the podcast, we're talking about adaptability. After a couple of huge years of disruption, you might be finding yourself feeling a little worn down from all the change. Well, this podcast episode is good news for you. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Southerns, and she told me that it's possible for adaptability to be something that can energize us rather than deplete us, and that it's a skill that any one of us can learn. Today, I give her a call to chat all about how we can strengthen that muscle personally and also develop it in those we lead. In all my travels over the years, I'm yet to meet a Canadian that isn't just one of the kindest humans I've ever met. And today's guest, Dr. Rebecca Southerns, is no exception. Rebecca is an insightful and high-energy collaborative strategist and a world-class facilitator who's served as a trusted advisor to hundreds of mission-driven organizations across Canada and internationally. She brings intellect, enthusiasm, and varied experience in strategy development and adaptability when speaking, writing, and mentoring. She's a skilled communicator with a particular gift for helping leaders make wiser decisions faster. Rebecca is a certified professional facilitator, frequent keynote speaker, and author of the books Nimble, Off Script But Still On Track, A Coaching Guide for Responsive Facilitation, and Sightline, Strategic Plans That Gather Momentum, Not Dust. It's an absolute privilege to have her on the podcast with me. Rebecca, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thanks very much, Shane. I am excited to have you on the show, not only because I think you're an extraordinarily clever person, but I also think you're just a really amazing human being. And so there's there's both the joy of being able to talk to you as a human being, but also the joy of being able to hear and glean a lot from your expertise. Um, one of the things we do when we kick off the show is to, to start with three fast facts. And the fast facts are, where were you born? What was your first job? And what do you do now? Okay, I was born in a place called Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. It's about 40 minutes west of Toronto and about an hour from where I live now. And I was um, employed as my first job by my grandfather who owned a golf course. And so the joke in our family was that we knew everything about running a golf course. I could book golf tournaments. I could bag tees. I could give people hot dogs. I could polish clubs, but never learned how to golf. But by the time I was probably 12, (laughs) I was, you know, running that pro shop. So uh, that was my first job. And we actually lived on the property of that golf course uh, for a period of time. And uh, what I do now is I am a, um, I'm basically a strategy facilitator. I'm really interested in uh, insightful, adaptable strategy, and I like doing that collaboratively with people. And so I do lots of things that help people become more nimble and adaptable. And partly what that means is that I help them figure out what's kind of fixed for them and what those anchor points are and where they can really flex. And so for me, that's mostly with uh, large nonprofit corporations and universities, health organizations, uh, local governments here in Canada where I live. And you do remarkable work. And I mean, uh, there's so much in terms of we could talk about just in going down the conversation around facilitation. But I have one really pressing question, which I feel like is a really important one to ask. I am yet in my life to meet a Canadian that I don't like. Uh, that isn't the <laughs> kindest human being that I've ever met. Is it? Is it like? Do you just breed really kind people in Canada? Like, what's the deal? Well, we're kind of. I appreciate that. So, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> but we are. We do kind of 
pride ourselves in niceness, right? For better or worse, we, you know, we kind of like being known as nice. And so your closest equivalent is probably Kiwis, right? I mean, when we go to New Zealand, mm. it feels sort of like home to us, except more sheep. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of similar to that. But we do, the the joke is that we are a bunch of nice people, whether that is great or too vanilla for people, I'm not sure. But I'll take it. I love it. Look, we were, <laughs> I was just recently in New York for a conference for the global IABC communication conference. And I heard a lot about the conference before I, it was my very first time attending, but what I heard more about than the actual conference was the Canadian party that was hosted every year. And this Ooh. is a thing, right? So apparently all the Canadians came down and it was by invite only. And they had like little Canadian flags that they would like secretly slip out through the event. And there was this just Absolute, probably one of the best parties that I've ever been to because it was just full of incredible human beings. Um, <laughs> look, I'm, I'm sure we got. We, I could honestly talk about my love for the Canadians all day. I'm curious to know. I mean, you've got such a, a rich history in facilitation. Like, where did that start? Like, where did your interest in that peak? What What kind of got you into that? What was the bit of the journey that led you towards that? Hmm. Early in my career, I was invited to help run some internal meetings that were leading to an organizational change process in the, the nonprofit I was working for at the time. And I'd never done anything like that. I think I was 22 and they saw something in me and invited me to learn some, um, some facilitation skills as part of that job. And I realized that I just thought that way, you know, the, the, the kinds of things they were teaching me, I almost couldn't believe I needed to be trained in it because it was just how my brain naturally worked. And so mm. um, I ended up through various other circuitous routes um, doing a bunch of different kinds of projects over my career. And when I took a look at my dog's breakfast of a CV at one point, I went, what is the thing that unites all of these disparate projects? Um, and what am I hearing from my clients is something that I do really well compared to some of the people that they've been um, finding in the marketplace. And consistently that was facilitation. And so probably 10 years ago, maybe a bit more, I really decided to focus my um, my practice on that. And uh, I've loved it. It's it's provided some terrific, interesting, varied work and also a really great group of, um, of colleagues as well. So I've really appreciated it. Mm. What, what do you feel like are some of the things that, I mean, for, for leaders in general that are, you know, often playing a role of a facilitator in, in mm -hmm. different conversations with their teams, um, where they may not always have the opportunity to come have someone externally come in and help facilitate those conversations. What do you feel like are some of the big mistakes you see people make when facilitating conversations to bring out the best of a conversation or a, or, or a team? I think big picture, I think the first thing I would encourage people to do or maybe to avoid doing is to make sure that the process itself is paid attention to. It's probably not great mm. grammar on that one, but noticing the quality of the process. Um, because, I mean, obviously facilitators are trained in good process, but what we know empirically is that people will trust decisions that were made using good process. So even if the decision itself affects them negatively, they will get behind it with greater enthusiasm if the process that led to that decision has legitimacy with them. So if it is transparent, if it is um, inclusive, uh, people will get behind even really difficult decisions. So that would be my first thing is to really um, notice the process. And related to that would be to notice 
who's in the room and who is missing in the room. And so, you know, and that room can be figurative. It could be, you know, digital or in person. It could be multiple rooms. But what I mean is um, facilitation is kind of grounded in um, a bias toward collaboration, a bias toward participation. And um, I believe that multiple perspectives are protective. I think we make better decisions when we have multiple perspectives in the room. So if the first point is about buy-in, the second point is really about blind spots. And I think mm. um, the world is waking up to our need to pay attention to justice and equity and inclusion and diversity. And there's nowhere that I see that even more than in, you know, facilitation processes that I designed to make sure that I don't want to say the right people, but a diverse group of people who are well representative of the communities the group is serving uh, need to be there. I really like that um, idea of of including more people as a protective piece because the we were in a conversation with a group of people recently where there is often a tendency what they described as um, blame diffusion, which is essentially their way of saying that if we get more people into the room, we can shift the blame from it being about any one individual person. Mm. But I really like like the balance of your perspective is actually when we've got a robust process that underpins that, then we can actually, and have the right voices in there, then actually can be a protective mechanism rather than it just being defaulting to a blame diffusion process. Yes, I love that expression. I hadn't thought of that. But I think one of the, the bridging points maybe between those two extremes would be to have real clarity about how a decision will be made. So. Mm. Whose decision is it? Um, when we're asking for participation or input, are we asking just for input or are we asking a group to make the decision? So maybe distinguishing between the conversation and the actual decision so that um, people are really clear what's going to happen to their input um, and whether mm. that is they're going to get blamed for it or whether that is that it's going to be disregarded. Somewhere in the middle comes a place where we say, Here's what we're asking you to weigh in on, for example, and here's where we're going to take that and how, what other factors are going to be included and weighed up by whom. Mm -hmm. And the decision will be made by this group of people by this date. You know, that kind of um, sort of process map, acknowledging that the facilitated conversation is rarely the only thing that... Mm. Um, shapes an eventual decision. So helping people understand how the decision will be made, not just encouraging them to include people in it, yes, but I think most people are kind of getting the hang of that now. I think the next thing is really making more transparent that black box of how decisions are made once the input's been gathered. I, I couldn't not ask a question about facilitation with your experience. You're a world-class facilitator. Um, but I, I know this this kind of season of your life is looking a bit different than the last season of your life. And I'm I'm really curious to know the things that like you're seeing at the moment, that you're noticing at the moment, or the things that are really exciting you right now. I mean, what's what's the stuff that's lighting you up at the moment? Wow, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about that. I um so my overall practice is really centered on the notion of adaptability. And so I am in a season, as you mentioned, of needing to embody that. And that is always a good thing when we have to uh, live our expertise, right? And so mm. we have four kids who range in age from 17 to 25. And uh, the youngest is on his way to university shortly. And we are uh, experiencing for the first time in 26 years, uh, a quiet house um, and figuring out what that season looks like. And the way that that is showing up for me that I'm really interested in is 
how people gracefully transition into new seasons of their lives, um, whether it's the one I described or not, and um, and what they can uh, learn and contribute in that space. For us, the idea of empty nest has not been our experience. It's been a decade-long emptying nest. And as someone who likes to pull band-aids off quickly, this has been a bit agonizing for me. Um, I would I remember saying when our first one left about 10 years ago, uh, if they can't all be here, I want none of them here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I kind of wanted either the whole family together or everybody to go and independently do their own thing while I did mine. And now gradually we have come to that place, um, but are adapting in all kinds of ways, both from a work point of view and family point of view. We have um, a three-year-old granddaughter and another uh, a grandson on the way that we just found out about. And so it's like the empty nest will be empty for five minutes. And in the midst of it, um, really looking forward to exploring some um, opportunities that I really probably didn't have a lot of breathing space for before. So I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm stoking my curiosity is what I'm I'm seeing this as. I really want to embrace um, the possibilities in this new season rather than grieving it all the time. It's it's obviously both, um, but I'm starting to discover some very um, almost like fruitful, I want to say, or fertile ground. It feels like where I know that if I really feed, I know that what we feed grows, right? So I know that if I feed my curiosity, there will be some really interesting things coming of it. So I'm starting to make a bit of a plan for that. Mm. A lot of the people that I've spoken with recently have, I guess, expressed this concern to me that after two years of huge disruption to their own personal lives, um, people who are transitioning work, transitioning seasons of life, they're in this stage of, I I'm not sure I, I, I want to use the word change fatigue, but just a, a bit of maybe a sense of uncertainty of like, is there more change coming? And if I'm staring down the barrel of more change, can I just keep adapting and can I keep changing? Do you look at some of these big changes after so much change in your life? Do you stare down the change and go, I'm so excited about this? Or does it still in the back of your mind elicit some kind of sense of, I don't know, fear or uncertainty or reservation? Mm, I love that question. Or exhaustion, perhaps. The, yeah, um, that's a good one. I think what I'm learning, one thing I'm learning is that adaptability has two features to it that I'm super grateful for. One is that it's learnable. So we can get better at it. It's a skill. So I'm trying to look at it as something I can learn to improve at as opposed to a fixed stage or character trait or something. So mm. an invitation to adapt yet again while it can feel exhausting, is also an invitation to, to get better at a skill that I want to get good at. So I'm trying to approach it with that mindset. And the other mm -hmm. good news about adaptability uh, is that uh, because it is learnable, it, it's also true that although we all adapt, the people who score really highly in adaptability, and we do now have a way to measure that with some validity, um, the people that have a, a high adaptability quotient, it's not that they adapt and the rest of us mere mortals don't. It's that in adapting, they love it. They love it. Mm. So they're energized by it. So the pathway to more energy in the face of change is actually to lean into it and learn to be good at it. Because in doing that, we will, it, it's almost like a source of sustainable energy. And I've been doing a ton of work during COVID on helping tired leaders lead tired teams 
And what we know about that level of fatigue that is deeper and more pervasive than any short-term vacation is going to solve is that we have to find a sustainable source of energy. It can't just be, um, you know, some quick fix and we'll feel better after the trauma that we've all been experiencing. So um, I think adaptability, in addition to being a requirement of us right now, is actually a gift to us right now if we can understand that it might itself be the pathway to refreshment. And that was game-changing for me. Wow. I mean, I when you talk about adaptability as a skill that can be practiced and learned, it, it kind of immediately evokes the image in my mind of, of it being a muscle that could be built and flexed and worked out. And I, I, which makes me kind of wonder whether adaptability is something that, you know, I, I think about my own experience of recently, you know, joining F45, which is like a gym class here and yeah. immediately, which I'm, I'm pretty certain might be a cult. I'm not really sure, but I, it's, <laughs> it's, I joined, but the first few sessions of that is just absolute torture because you're flexing muscles you didn't know you had, you're building muscles you didn't really realize were part of you. And then there's a like a barrier where you kind of cross a threshold from where something which was painful gets strengthened that it actually becomes enjoyable. Now, it's never fully enjoyable. There's always stretch and there's always tearing of the muscle, but it can actually become something that's quite enjoyable. Now, is there any parallel between that, between adaptability? Is it something that can get better with time the more that you have to adapt? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's what learnable skills are like. And so maybe, I hadn't thought of it this way, but maybe having had to practice our adaptability skills in the face of uncertainty for the last couple of years, maybe some of us at least are through that really torturous phase, right? And now we're going, okay, I've, and I often start workshops on this with a question of, you know, tell me some places where you've, you have adapted, um, you know, where you do things differently, you do things better than you did two years ago. And also kind of how you responded to that. Some of us resist it like crazy and others of us, you know, kind of surrender to it. And when you're talking mm -hmm. about sort of the ability to stretch, I'm working on a new book right now that is playing with the metaphor of elasticity and elastic leadership. And one of the things I'm learning about that is that if you think of an elastic band, if it's not stretched at all, it's completely useless, right? So mm -hmm. you have to stretch it a bit in order for it to yeah. fulfill any sort of purpose. But obviously, if you stretch it too far, it snaps or it loses its shape. And, it, and you know, playing with that idea of not snapping back into old patterns that didn't serve us very well. But I'm starting to learn to see stretching as a good and useful thing without which we actually aren't that useful. And I think a lot of us in our fatigue are literally wanting to curl up and watch Netflix and not be terribly stretched at all. And so figuring mm. out how much stretch keeps us engaged in meaningful life and how much is just too much right now because it's almost like our elasticity has become a bit brittle. And I, I wonder if adaptability is going to be at least one pathway to build a bit more almost like suppleness into us that helps us mm -hmm. greet this as, a, as an opportunity. And it, what I want to really affirm here is that it's not kind of toxic positivity of the Pollyanna, like, oh, all change is good and we love it. And we don't. It's like you mm. said, the gym still hurts most of the time. Um, and we feel awesome after, right? Mm. And for all kinds of physical and mental reasons. And so there is something about that of I'm not the, you know, oh, you're going to love this kind of, of adaptability coach. But 
I do think there's something to the fact that the people who are good at it have learned to be good at it. They're not just born like that. Um, and when they're awesome at it, they are jazzed when they talk about it. They're so excited. And I want that to be um, my experience. And so I feel like the learning process is worth it. I think the other thing I would say, Shane, is that there's tons of ways to get good at it. So the reason that I'm interested in this adaptability assessment work is not because it's, it teaches us how to adapt. It actually teaches us almost like our path of least resistance to adaptability. Like all of us are adapting, but, you know, some of us are, you know, tromping through the woods with it and others of us have found a pathway to actually just walk happily through the woods to get there. And if we can mm -hmm. identify each of our easy pathways to it, we're all heading to that adaptability place. It's just if we can find our preferred methods, if I can put it that way, to get there, um, both individually and in our teams, actually, and in our corporate environments. Um, it's something we have to do anyway. Why would we not take a path we enjoy to get there? I was in a conversation last night. I was delivering a keynote in Sydney, and it was a, a group of CEOs, and I was talking about culture. And one of the questions that came out in the Q&A was fascinating to me. He said, do you think pressure is a good thing to help build culture. And honestly, I don't think I've ever been asked that question around this because he was saying like, we often like, we're seeing this kind of thing of like withdrawing, holding back and not putting too much pressure on certain aspects of things. And he said, and I wonder whether that's made an impact. And it, it, it's the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about that elasticity and that stretch is going, well, a rubber band without stretch is, is really useless. Well, you can't think of an example where you go, I'm going to hold this together with a loose rubber band. Like it's actually serves a particular function. So I think elasticity and pressure are kind of similar conversations that we're asking. Mm -hmm. So how do you, I mean, if, put, if you put yourself in from maybe a leader's perspective, how do you know how much stretch or pressure to apply that allows a person to get the benefits of adapting without putting too much pressure or bringing too much stretch that you end up causing mm -hmm. damage as a result of that? Right. Such a good question. And I think where I would situate that in some of the current research is, you know, if we say that too much stress, too much stress rather could be burnout territory. Um, one of the ways that we can pull back from burnout is, um, appreciation is one that is coming through. We've got some new research in, from my part of Canada that just came out last week about the, the power of being noticed. People want to be seen yeah. and, and just have a sense that what they're doing not only matters, but is seen to matter. Um, and not in a, you know, here's a participation ribbon kind of way, but actually a meaningful <laughs> yeah. way that says, we are noticing what you're doing and appreciating it. So that is one, I almost see that as a way of, I don't know, to mix the metaphors maybe, but limbering up the muscle a bit to say, if you feel appreciated, um, you know that you are motivated to perform well and you can probably stretch a little further. Um, but the other counteracting piece of that is workload. Um, a lot of the burnout research, at least in the Canadian context, is noticing that people's actual quantity of work is too high. And mm. when we're seeing a lot of people leaving their jobs um, for all kinds of reasons, COVID-related and not, but to the extent that the great resignation is a thing, um, the people that have not left are left with more work. And so we have a tired group of people um, who are short-staffed. 
And so I think doing things like managing workloads with people, extending deadlines, dropping some things that are not high priorities, giving people really focused priorities really helps. So there's some really practical things like that. And then I think on an almost like an existential level, if I can continue the athletic metaphor, I think about like if you were running a race and the finish line was just around the corner, I am no marathoner, but if, if you were doing that and you're almost done and you're exhausted and your coach is on the sidelines, you might want your coach to say, oh, I'm so sorry, baby, you're so tired. Come on over here and I've got a warm blanket and a cup of tea for you. That's what you want in that moment. And your coach, if they are in any way a good coach, in that particular moment is not going to do that for you because they're going to say, wait a minute, I can see the finish line. You've got 700 meters to go. And they're basically going to kick your butt to get you to that finish line. Is there another day or another time where they come with the tea and the warm blanket? Probably. So I think there is a discernment that comes out of relationship that allows the coach to know if the person needs a stretch or needs to relax a bit. And I think we the circumstances of being a human lately have stretched us such that I think work environments are trying to ease things for us to, to kind of ease back on that stretch a bit. And I'm wondering, I'm noticing in my strategy work with people, they want a compelling goal. They want a mm. motivating if not finish line, then at least milestone or achievement or something. And I'm not seeing people wanting to be coddled right now. I'm seeing people who are actually craving a non-COVID related um, achievement or, or at least a, a compelling goal, a vision, a, a purposeful, you know, um, I don't know, I, I'm trying to think of another word, but sort of like a group thing to get behind to say, we are all in this together, heading to this compelling place. I think mm. that's the kind of leadership we need right now. People who can cast a vision and help people get there more than people who are brewing the tea. I'm so glad you used the running metaphor because that was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned that before. I, I was thinking back to my experience. I ran a marathon in Paris in 2013 and that experience for me, there was, there was a couple of things that stood out in my mind. It, it was, I think at maybe every kilometer, um, there was, um, a, a checkpoint and it was live music and it was stages and things like that. And it was all, you know, it was all exciting. The atmosphere was electric, but what I loved the most is as you were kind of getting towards kind of the, the final one to two kilometers, it was, the streets were lined with people cheering for you and they didn't just cheer and applaud when you ran past, they would see the, the name on your, um, your runner's bib and they would see, um, the country that you were from because it would say Hatton, Australia. And so that you would hear this go, um, Hatton from Australia and you would hear them call you by name. And oh, it was like, I had, I'd run for five hours before that. And it was, you know, I had 10 minutes or 15 minutes left of running. I didn't think I had more in me. And it was like the moment those people called me out by name, it kind of lit something inside of me. And I discovered this kind of untapped energy. And I, I immediately thought of the leader on the sideline is like, I, I, I can relate to everything I wanted to do would just to stop there. And had I stopped yeah. there, I wouldn't have had this, the, the feeling of actually crossing that finish line. And so having someone who can see something in you that maybe you can't see in yourself in that moment, would that be kind of what I'm hearing mm. in this? Oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. You almost make me want to run a marathon, but not quite. Um, 
And and to use a very different kind of example, I feel like we're the king and queen of metaphors today. But the um, I remember a moment when my first baby was literally being born. And what came out of my mouth was, I can't do this. And what I meant was, I can't do this much longer if it gets worse. I just couldn't spit out all those words. So I just said, I can't do this. And the woman who was my doula, birth attendant at the moment, she said, I know you can't, and it doesn't get any worse than this. And in that moment, I was like, I needed that. And that was just enough to get me over the, the hump. And certainly at various moments in my business, um, when I've been working way too hard and having, you know, some business coach say to me, you're right, you actually need to work less um, in order to whatever, be more productive, generate more revenue, whatever it is I'm trying to do. Having someone who could say to me, it is possible, even just possible for you to work less and make more. Is that a thing? So I'm thinking about the leaders listening today. Is it, depending on their line of work, right? Is it possible for you to do less and generate more? Generate more revenue, generate more of whatever good stuff you're trying to generate. Um, and just having somebody who believed in that possibility when I couldn't see it was enough to get me over that hump. So I've seen that happen in a lot of different ways in my, in my work and in my life. I, I really like this perspective and and a couple of things that came through in the research for my latest book, Let's Talk Culture, was we asked people what are the top culture builders and what are the top culture killers? And half the people in our research said uh, a lack of recognition will kill culture. And um, in the top five culture builders was clear and realistic workload expectations. So <laughs> these things that are coming through, uh, both the recognition that, hey, we, we can't load people up to an unbearable weight, even though we can encourage them and stretch them, we actually can't overload them with kind of workload, unrealistic workload expectations, and we can't ignore them. Um, and what I realized from lots of the conversations, the interviews we did, recognition for people wasn't as much about feeling valued for the work they do as much as it was about them being seen for the work that they do. And I love that you use that language of helping people feel seen. <laughs> and so I think about leaders from those leaders perspective, those are super practical things to go, Hey, see the best in people, keep pointing them to the finish line, you know, know when it's time to give them the tea and know when it's time to call out the best in them. Um, make sure that you're rewarding and recognize them and reevaluating the workload expectations and making sure that they're realistic, which is super practical from a leader's perspective. And I'm also mindful that people listen to this podcast and they're not in that position where they feel like they can change that. So maybe you're, you're thinking about a person who's going, well, my workload expectations are unclear. I feel like I've got no, nothing that I can do about this, but I feel like I'm at that point of like, I can't keep adapting anymore. I can't keep changing anymore. I can't do it. How does that person, you know, move forward or navigate that kind of um, challenge? Yeah. Um, perhaps a bridge to that is to help leaders notice that when someone has been stretched in a particular way for too long, for too far, mm. they can't go back to the original shape that they had. And by definition, they've lost their elasticity because elastic things bounce back, right? And mm. so I think if, if people are feeling like, yeah, that's me, I am the overstretched elastic, right? Um, I don't have uh, much left. I think, um, first of all, acknowledging that, yes, you know, it is a, that is a really, um, it's a really challenging place to be. And um, there's some very interesting work 
um, that I've found, I'm thinking about, there's a book called Impact Players and another one called Leading Without Authority that Keith Ferrazzi wrote. And I'm really interested in what it means to be that impact player from, say, the middle of an organization where, mm. um, you know, you aren't the one setting the rules. You're not the one setting the workload, but you are the one expected to, um, you know, make it happen. Yeah. And you know, I think that's where I, I go back to this adaptability work because I think adaptability, I know adaptability is a team and individual sport. And so when we don't have it in ourselves, is there a way that we can rely on our team and or on our corporate setting? So our larger, uh, our larger scenario and our immediate team, the characteristics about both can actually help or hinder us to be adaptable, but also our personal characteristics can shape our team and our corporate ability to be adaptable. So I feel like there's a resource there that, and, and team support is actually one of the most powerful predictors of adaptability in an individual. So to the extent that perhaps that person stuck in the middle um, feels that they don't have a lot of control, they may have an ability to influence positively the culture of their team, like the microculture in which they work, but also to be supported by that team. So maybe the corporate environment feels oppressive in some way, but hopefully the immediate team environment may not. Um, and another area, there's, there are, you know, 15 and different combinations of them, but one other area that I think is really helpful in adaptability is this idea of um, mental flexibility combined with unlearning. So if you think about a combination of my traditional pathways for doing something aren't working and I feel like I'm running up against a wall all the time, mental flexibility says there are lots of good ways to get to that destination. You know, if this pathway isn't working, I'm going to try another one. The unlearning combination with that says if I have old beliefs, old habits, old ways of doing things, old ways of seeing the world, that are no longer serving me well. They might have been at one point, they are no longer. The more someone can let go of them, it kind of frees up mind space and energy and focus to really embrace a new way of doing things. And so I picture it being like having your parking brake on while you have your gas pedal on and you just need to release mm -hmm. that parking brake by letting go of some of the old things. So I think listening for some of the outdated stories you're telling yourself or ways you're doing things in order to really accelerate progress and then saying, and I've got this extra rocket fuel of accelerated progress across a range of multiple possible ways of getting something done. So people really fundamentally believe that there's more than one way to do something if their traditional habitual pathway of getting it done literally feels like running up against concrete. They go, okay, this path is not working. Resilience does not mean trying the same thing over and over and over again that isn't working. It mm. means actually bouncing back, getting up again, yes, but trying a different way. And I think one last thing on this, I was meeting with the, um, the head of a, something called the Global Resilience Institute. They have a new report out on resilience. Interestingly, two of the top five contributors to resilient people across a very large sample Top one by a lot was sleep. Mm. And another top five one was rest as distinct from sleep. That blew me away. People don't yeah. realize how much non-work activity 
shapes our ability to do our work activity. So if people are feeling like their resilience battery is very low, um, sleep and rest are actually going to make a big, big difference to that. And that's something that your work environment um, may not have as much say over, but perhaps the way that you run your non-work time um, will recharge that battery for you. Wow. There's so much in that for people, like at a really practical level. I think one of the things that I love in that is this idea of um, not writing off a scenario that we've played out in our head because of an, a previous experience. Um, mm. And I'll, I'll give you, I've, I've spoken to a few people lately. They've probably had this conversation, I reckon three times where someone's come to me in a, in a coaching session or a conversation and said, I'm weighing up between two options. And I, I can't decide which of those options. And my immediate question to them is, is there a third? Like, because at right, the, right now, I think, we, you know, we've got a mutual uh, mentor and friend who's, who said, you know, if you've got two um, uh, decisions, two decision points, you've really got an ultimatum, not a choice. And if you've got a third, you can then have at least some kind of a choice. And I said, well, what's the third option? And they go, well, I, I can't talk to my boss because um, if I tell them, that I'm, them that, that I'm struggling, that I can't carry the work at the moment, then they're going to tell me to suck it up and they're going to say, and they, they kind of create this narrative of how it would play out. And I was like, okay, well, if we take that scenario, well, what are the options? It's like, well, I stay and I endure it and I burn out or I leave and I quit my job. And I'm like, well, what if the option was that you actually play this scenario out and it goes better than you expected and you get to stay in the job and not burn out in the process of that. And in their mind, they just honestly struggle to kind of come up with that as even a reasonable or feasible option. And is that a part of that unlearning process, like that mental flexibility that you're talking about? Yeah, I think particularly mental flexibility, right? Of mm. when we are stressed, we get really binary and, mm. and we kind of revert to extremes in some ways. And um, it's hard for us to see nu nuance. Um, it's hard for us to imagine things playing out differently because we have replayed that script in our heads over and over again, forgetting that it's imaginary, right? It's all made up. We, that, that conversation has not played out yet. The end of that chapter of the story is yet to be written and we've written it a particular way. So I think reminding people that in a sense, they hold the pen on that and can write that story, at least they're part of it, differently um, and helping. I, I know I've found this really helpful in my own life when somebody says, you know, in a sense, that's all made up, right? Um, mm. So make it up differently. You know, for me, that's, that's <laughs> come out in like pricing for my work, for example. It's like, well, people wouldn't yeah. pay that. It's like, well, who said that? You know, do you know that? So yeah, I think that there is that sense of finding the third way. And so that's another really practical strategy when people hear themselves living in binaries you probably know that the stress is high. So it's not only looking for that third way, which I would really affirm I would do the same in a coaching session. I think it's also finding ways to lower the stressometer because mm. of all the things in this adaptability measurement tool that I've been referring to, uh, which is called AQAI, by the way, if people are curious. Um, work stress is the one that I'm really seeing as um, emerging amongst my clients as being alarmingly high. And so in some of the ways that you've talked about, whether that's workload, whether that's being seen and appreciated at work, there's many other interventions that you know about because of your culture work. But lowering the stress helps us be less fixed in our thinking and less binary. This has been such a helpful conversation because I, what I love about it is there's a balance of um, 
the awareness of this thing that we're doing that we're not always necessarily conscious of. Like we're not necessarily conscious of the constant need to adapt or what's been in front of us over the last couple of years and maybe uncertain as to why we feel the way that we're feeling. Um, but also maybe potentially a glimmer of hope that it can get better and that it can actually be something that improves. And um, obviously the practical aspects of this, of, of becoming aware of flex of adaptability being a muscle that we can flex to actually energize us rather than it being something that drains us, being able to be aware of where we need to stretch or where we need to kind of pull back a little bit when it's tea time, when it's like push time. These are just some really practical tips around, um, obviously just for people around adaptability and you know, if I if I was to kind of give you a little soapbox to stand on and, and you had an audience of all the leaders that are listening to this right now and you go, hey, here's 30 seconds for you to stand on that soapbox and, and you know, whatever it is that you would want to say to them, what's the thing that you would leave them with today? Oh, I love that. Um, I think I would start by saying don't be oblivious. <laughs> I wish I could come up with a more positive way of framing that. I haven't found a good opposite to oblivious that really gets the message across. But I think pay attention to how your people are doing so that you do have a sense of what they need. But along with that, you are not exempt from all those same forces that are pressing in on them. And so we're seeing levels of burnout among leaders right now that are higher than we've seen in well more than a decade which are normally present with frontline workers and much less so with leaders, and we're seeing it at the leadership level. So I want to say the don't be oblivious piece gently and also with it pointing both toward the leader and toward their people, because um, paying attention has to do with caring for your folks, but also caring for yourself. And so um, I would love to have people really pay close attention. And the other thing, you mentioned hope. Uh, the number one predictor of adaptability across the 15 dimensions in the AQAI tool is hope. And I think wow. that's remarkable. And in that context, hope means two things. It means believing in a positive future and believing that there is a way to get there. So there's a sense of optimism combined with agency that we know now is a very powerful predictor of our ability to adapt both individually and corporately. And so <clears throat> to the extent that leaders have a role in, um, I don't know, is it amplifying hope? And that seems like a strange businessy thing to say, right? And yet I really believe that it has as much to do with the meaningful work that we do as it does with our non-work parts of our lives. Because I mentioned those contributors to resilience. One of the other five, rest and sleep are two, one of the other ones is fulfillment. And I think if we can, as leaders, connect people with the meaning of what they're doing, hope is born in that place. Um, and so those are the things that I would want to say on my mini soapbox. So thanks for asking. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Look, I, I am convinced that people who are listening to this episode, who maybe are discovering for you the first time, who've probably been hiding on a rock somewhere, are, are just absolutely, you know, loving, loving hearing from you. And so for people who want to continue to keep hearing from you and find ways to connect with you, what are the best ways for people to be able to do that? Basically, if you know my name, you'll be able to find me. That's one of the advantages of having uh, <laughs> having a slightly unusual name. So my name is Rebecca Southerns with no O. That's how you have to spell it. Um, and RebeccaSoutherns.com is where people find me. And that's true also on LinkedIn. And uh, I write a blog every week called Wiser Decisions Faster. That's probably the best way to figure out what I've been thinking about and hear about upcoming things. And then um, later this year, probably December-ish, um, my book on elastic leadership 
should be available. And uh, we'll be doing some follow-up workshops related to that that I do all around the world. So I would love that opportunity if people want to dig into this metaphor and idea um, with me. There's some uh, really fun stuff we're uncovering as we go along, and I would love to share that with people. Amazing. There's most people have like a countdown clock to Christmas day. Um, I now have a countdown clock until your new book coming, comes out. I cannot wait to read it. I'm so excited about that. Um, and you do just such phenomenal work. Um, I, I, I've, I've had the privilege of being able to be a, a fly on the wall in one of the, your book clubs that you ran, which was just so sensational. Uh, and of course you're just a really great human being. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Shane, I so appreciate the opportunity. It's always a treat to talk to you. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.